turn over to Luke 23. Luke 23. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. I, uh, I'm not going to preach long today, I don't think, and, you know, God may have other intentions. I'm actually going to preach somewhat of a shorter message, maybe. Um, and that, that's good, because I was told this morning I needed to finish on time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't listen anyway. <laughs> oh, goodness. Hallelujah. All right, we're going to be in Luke 23. We're going to read in verse 33 down to verse 43. Now, we have been doing this series, I Know Nothing Except Jesus Christ and Him Crucified. You guys know that, and I won't go take time to recap all of that here. But the last few messages have been about the increasing humiliation of Jesus. Getsemane, and then the arrest, and then the trial at Pontius Pilate's, or at Caiaphas' house, and then the trial at Pontius Pilate's house. And now we are skipping all the way to the cross. There's a lot of stuff in the midst of all that, but we're skipping to the cross because I'm not trying to go line by line here. I'm just trying to follow the Holy Spirit and what I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to speak to us in this, in this series. And I really began to feel in my heart, I'm, I'm sorry, hang on a second, did, did, did Pastor Lewis leave? Yeah, did he leave? You guys wanted to do it at the end of service. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I about broke a promise, and I'm, I stopped traffic because I don't break promises. So you're supposed to be a man of your word or a woman of your word. The first thing God ever spoke to me is if you can't be a man of your word, you'll never be a man of mine. So... <laughs> so so I, I make sure I don't break promises. So sorry for the little intermission period there. Um, but anyway, back to what I was saying is there are several trials of Jesus. Right There's the trial in Caiaphas' house. Then there's the trial with Pontius Pilate and Herod. And then here we're going into what's the third trial of Jesus. And so what I'm wanting to communicate to you guys is I want, I want us to deal with a question. I want us to deal with a question today. Side, side note, I, I know I'm all over the place. Look, <laughs> you're just going to have to bear with me because I got a lot on my mind and I'm trying to reduce it to a very small message. But have you guys ever had, do, how many of you guys dream? How many of you guys have dreams? I'm not talking prophetic dreams, although that's cool too. I'm just talking dreams in general. Okay, a lot of you. How many of you have ever had the dream where you're running from somebody or something and you can't get away? It's like no matter where you go, no matter what you do, how fast you run, how, where you hide, it's like the thing that's chasing you or the person that's chasing you is always right there. You guys ever had those? Uh, I ha- I've had them. I haven't had them in a long time, praise God, but I-, I used to have them all the time. And psychologists actually did a study on this, and they found that this dream, being so general or so universal, it's actually the most common dream scenario in people. And the reason that it's so common is because it's caused by anxiety. It's caused by anxiety, which everybody's like, yeah, of course, duh. But it's actually not just caused by anxiety, it's caused by our reaction to anxiety. There's a very specific reaction that some people have to anxiety and that causes the dream where you're being chased and can't get away from your pursuer. The reaction is when we have anxiety but we are unwilling or unable to deal with the root cause of the anxiety or we are subconsciously avoiding the root cause of that anxiety, it produces 
the dream where you're trying to run away, but you can't escape because the root cause of anxiety is chasing you down. That's psychologists, that's a general consensus. And so you're probably like, why in the world are you bringing this up? Or you're probably like, dang, I've got anxiety and I don't know what the root cause is and how am I going to deal with it? And, and if half of you have dreams where you're running from somebody tonight, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the reason that I bring this up is because the question that I want to deal with is much like that. It's like that pursuer that you can't get away from. There is a single question that every single person has to deal with. There's one question that every single person has to deal with no matter who it is. It doesn't matter how rich you are or poor you are. It doesn't matter how young, how old. It doesn't matter how strong or how weak. It doesn't matter how, what kind of political power you get. It doesn't matter. You have to deal with this question. Everybody has or has to deal with it. And the question is very simple. It's first asked by Pontius Pilate in Matthew 27, 22. And the question is this, what shall I then do with this man, Jesus, who is called Christ? What shall I do with Jesus? What am I supposed to do with Jesus? Pilate asks this because he offers to release Jesus and Barabbas, and they say, release Barabbas, the killer, the robber, the murderer, release him. And then he says, well, what shall I do with this man, Jesus, who is called Christ? And they say, crucify him, crucify him. So all the things that Pilate done, one thing that you have to give him is he does ask pretty good questions. What is truth and what shall I do with Jesus? <laughs> That's, those, are, those are two of the best questions you could possibly ask. But what shall I do with Jesus? And see, A.W. Tozer is a hero of mine, and he, asked, he wrote this statement. He said, what someone believes about God is the most important thing about them. And I agree with that with the one disclaimer that it can't just be what a person thinks about God. It's what a person thinks about Jesus. Because, see, in the world, people don't care if you talk about God. People don't care if you believe in God. Listen, atheists don't care if you believe in God. They don't. Atheists will even allow you to have a conversation concerning God. They will. They'll allow you to have a conversation concerning God so long as you admit that God is an impersonal force that's just behind the origin of life. And you can, they'll call it the universe, they'll call it matter, they'll call it energy, whatever. As long as you identify God as being impersonal and detached and separate. But the moment you start making assertions about God's personality or God's mind, atheists have a problem. Agnostics are those who say they believe in God, but you can't know anything intelligible about God. They'll let you have God, but the moment you try to say anything definitive, they say, no, 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 God can't be known. Buddhists, Confucianists, Taoists, they'll let you believe in God, so long as you believe that God is more of a state of being or a spiritual force, not the Judeo-Christian God. You see where I'm going with this? Anybody will let you talk about God or let you believe in God so long as you don't make any kind of assertions about him. Jews will let you believe in God so long as you stop right there. The moment that you try to assert that God took on flesh and became a man and was born of a virgin, now we have a problem. Muslims will let you believe in God. They'll even let you claim that it's the same God of Judeo-Christianity, but then they'll distort his character and his actions so much that it's altogether unrecognizable. Th so the point isn't what you do with God. The point is, is what do you do with Jesus? 
That's, that's what it all comes down to. And I get so <laughs> tickled when we have all these conversations and people are debating about the existence of God and they're debating about this and they're debating about that. And it's like we're just talking and beating all the way around the bush. Let's just ask the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And I believe that we typically fall into one of three categories. People. Not blood-bought, born-again believers. I'm just saying people in general typically fall into one of three categories with what they do with Jesus. And that's where this passage comes in. So let's read a few verses and then let's lay this out. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew this is the king of the Jews and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying if thou be Christ save thyself and us but the other answering rebuked him saying dost not thou fear God seeing that thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds but this man hath done nothing amiss and he said unto Jesus Lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom and Jesus said unto him verily I say unto thee today thou shalt be with me in paradise Praise God. All right, let's, let's address one thing first. When they came to the place which is called Calvary, they crucified him. I don't think that there's another statement in all of Scripture that has so much contained in it in such a few words. There they crucified him. Crucifixion is barbaric. It is the worst death that anyone could die, in my opinion. And listen, I'm a weirdo, and I have a little bit of a morbid side those of you that don't know me that well, I've looked into various causes of death. I've read Fox's Book of Martyrs and the creative ways that people tried to kill other people. I've done all of that. And to me, crucifixion and what the Romans did and the four or five types of crucifixion that they operated in is some of the most grotesque and wicked things that ha- this planet has ever seen. Even more so than what the Nazis did to the Jews. Even more so. One form of crucifixion, and I won't go into all of them, but one form of crucifixion is they took a dead body and they nailed it to you. And you had to live the rest of your life until the decomposition of that body and the diseases transferred over and killed you. And you could not take it away. And the only way that you could get that body off of you is if someone volunteered to take your place. That's only one. But the form of crucifixion that Jesus endured was that he was to carry the upper beam of his cross And he was so weak from the chastisement that he'd experienced where they beat his back with the cat of nine tails and tore open his flesh and put the crown of thorns where he's bleeding blood. And you know how much of a headache that would give you. And he's so weak and he's so dehydrated and he's so tired because he hasn't slept all night. He's unable to carry the cross. So they have to pull a man to carry the upper beam for him. And then they take him to this place and they lay the cross out and they lay him on it. And then they drive these railroad tie nails through his wrists. And then they do it to his feet. And we believe, most people picture the cross as what's called triclavianism. There's a big word for you. Triclavianism means three nails. Because the Roman Catholic Church painted the pictures of Jesus with his feet crossed and one nail going through both feet. The truth is, is that's probably not accurate. It's probably not accurate because you have so many little bones on the top of your foot that a nail going through that would probably break them and 
it is written that not a bone of him is broken. No, what they probably did was they probably drove the nail through right above his heel into the side of the cross because that was more typical of what Romans did. They drove it through the side of his heel so that the blood then ran from his heel and down onto the earth, which is Golgotha or Goliath of Gath, which is where it's believed that David brought the head of the giant back, buried it in outside of the city gate and there is where the place of the skull Goliath's skull that's so the blood of the seed of the woman ran down onto the head of the seed of the serpent so he shall bruise your heel you shall bruise his head it's a cool little picture I don't know (laughs) if it really fulfills everything that it says that it does but whatever the point is is that they drove these railroad ties through his heels And then if you're hanging and your arms are above you, the pressure that that puts on your lungs causes them to collapse. And so breathing becomes impossible. So what you have to do is you have to push up on where the nails are at, on the wound, on your hands and on your feet, and push all your weight against that to push yourself up to draw breath. And what happens is it begins to produce asphyxiation or suffocation in you, which then causes your lungs and the area around your heart to fill with water. And it becomes increasingly more difficult to breathe. And what happens is the struggle and the exertion ends up causing your heart to rupture. And so when the soldier finally punctured his side, outflows blood and water, It confirms long before physicians and medicine was to the place to where they could diagnose these things. It confirms medically about the way that Jesus died. He died from asphyxiation producing a ruptured heart. That's what he went through willingly. Willingly to accomplish our atonement. So. Now I want to get into what we do with Jesus. This is what happened to him. But now I want to get into what we do with Jesus. And like I said, there's three categories. The first is culture. What does culture do with Jesus? How does culture deal with this question? And it's typically two different ways. Two different ways. In Matthew 27, 22, when Pilate's asking the question, what shall I do with this man Jesus who is called Christ? The mob responds, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The first way that culture deals with Christ is through antagonism or enmity or hate. Crucify him. A dead Christ is better than a live one. Put him on the cross. It's okay if he's on the cross as as long as he's not in my heart. Because a live Christ, a living Christ, interferes with what I'm doing. It messes up my plans. It messes up my agenda. It messes up my status, my popularity. Put him on the cross. And that's why all the time we have people that we like have the pretty paintings of Jesus on the cross and he's nowhere in their life whatsoever because we oftentimes like a Jesus on the cross and not active in our life. Get him out of the way. That's the first way that culture deals with him is put them on the cross. It's okay if you sing songs about a dead Christ, but just don't get the Spirit of God residing inside you and do something with a living Christ. That's the first way is antagonism. The second way that culture does is found in verse 35 when it says this. Yes, verse 35. And the people stood beholding. And the people stood beholding. See, the first way that culture deals with Christ is through antagonism and through hate and get him out of here, get him off out of my face, get him away, crucified, put him on the cross. The second way that culture deals with him is they just stand and watch. 
It's not antagonism because there were people in this group that weren't angry at Jesus, that didn't hate him. I mean, in the passage before, they're crying over him. But they're just standing afar off watching. Because while they're not antagonistic towards Jesus, God forbid that Christianity cost them anything. God forbid that Christianity put any demand on their life. I mean, we struggle with going to church. (laughs) God forbid that Christianity actually put any other sacrificial demands on our life. That's why J.C. Ryle said, you know, Christianity is fine so long that it costs nothing, it requires nothing, it doesn't, you don't have to sacrifice anything, but then he says that a Christianity that costs nothing is worth nothing. And David says, how shall I render unto God that which costs me nothing? So when he's... When we're talking about culture standing afar off, it's like, I don't really want to make a decision. I don't want to make an antagonistic decision against Christ, but I don't really want to make a positive assertion either, because if I make a positive assertion, then that's going to put the focus on me, and they may just throw me up on a cross right next to them. But see, what they don't realize, and what we fail to realize, is that failure to make a choice is always making a choice. Indecision is always actually decision. I I always use this example when someone if you're sitting at a table and you say that I'm hungry and someone brings a salad and puts it in front of you and you're trying to wrestle with whether to eat or to not eat. If you decide, hey, I don't want to decide to eat, but I don't want to decide not to eat. So I'm just going to sit here in indecision. You have actually made a decision to not eat. And if you're sitting here and you're like, I don't want to make a decision for Christ, but I don't want to make a decision against Christ, and I'm just going to sit here in this state of indecision, you're actually making a decision against Christ. That's why Jesus says, those that are not with us are against us. <laughs> One time in a church, I may have been here. No, it was, I don't remember where it was at. Anyway, one time in church, <laughs> I said something about, you know, we were doing an altar call, and I said, if anybody doesn't come up to get prayer for what you need, I'm taking it as a witness today that you don't want what God has for you. <laughs> was that here? I don't remember. <laughs> but, but everybody's like running to the front. It's like, no. <laughs> it's like, but see, what we do all the time is when someone has an altar call or says, hey, would you like prayer for healing? And we're suffering but we don't go up. It's like we're taking it. God's not going to heal me. So I'm not going to go up there. God's not going to help me financially and cause me to make through this, get this breakthrough. God's not going to deliver me from this situation. God's not going to help me in this relationship or in this social um, situation or this circumstance. So we just don't go up. And so what we don't realize is that in not going up, we're actually telling God straight to his face, I don't believe you can help me. Either I don't believe you can or I don't believe you want to. So not making a decision is always making a decision. It's a figment of our imagination. It's a red herring. It's saying, hey, I have this third option. No, you don't. You have two. And so culture, what culture does is culture says Christianity is fine as long as it doesn't affect our agenda. Or culture gets over to where it's at right now and it's just outright animosity towards Christianity. Anybody think it's funny that our culture is fine with every other belief system except for Christianity? If there wasn't a bigger testament to the truth claims of Christianity, that right there is enough. That they can let, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, it doesn't matter if you're Hindu, it doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, it doesn't matter if you're Islamic. In fact, if you're Islamic, we're going to walk down the street and parade you around because, hey, go you. But the moment that you claim Christianity, if you live it, because they don't mind the claim. That some of them make the claim and they have no more substance behind it than the man on the moon. But the moment that you start living it, 
Now the world is against you. Culture always has one of two positions. Ignore it, stand on the fringes, just let it be, or straight antagonism against it. The question still remains. The next group that, has, that deals with the question in this passage is the church. Of course, this is the religious leaders of Judaism, but I'm talking about religion in general, the church. I'm not talking about the invisible church, the bride and the body of Christ. I'm not talking about the blood-bought, born-again, redeemed believers in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the institutional church, the visible church, the things that people see, the thing that I am altogether sick of at times. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that come together and they have their few songs and they preach their message whether or not they mention Jesus and then they go home. I'm talking about the churches that are so concerned about budgets and so concerned about numbers and metrics and all this stuff that they altogether program God right out of the building. I'm talking about the churches that would rather have it their way and be man-centered than have it God's way. Listen, I have seen churches do stupid things. I watched a church that did an Adams Family production recently. On Halloween, that's what they did. <laughs> they, they set up these pictures, these big screens, thousands of dollars, people's faces singing the Adams Family song. Singing the song, and then they come out dressed up and, uh, like the Adams Family and introduce themselves that way, and that's how they conduct church. I watched the, when The Greatest Showman came out. There's a church that's not too far from here. I watched them set up their whole sanctuary like a tent and do a circus production. And sing the songs and have the woman come out with the beard, the bearded lady singing the songs. And I'm like, this is, this is pathetic. Like, I don't mind if you want to have a song night concert and you want to sing your songs, sing your songs. But get it out of God's house. Get it out of God's house. You know, one of my heroes is Martin Lloyd-Jones. One of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he took over. He was a medical professional. He was a doctor, highly rated, and God called him to preach. So he left his medical field, and he just went over into ministry, and he took a little country church of like that was dying. I think it at one time had been several hundred people, and it got down to like where it was like tw- 20 people or so. And they had all these programs, all these different activities, you know, football games and so- whatever. And he said, first thing we're doing is we're shutting all this down. We're just going to get rid of all of it, and we're going to have a church service and a Bible study. That's what he did. Of course, all the outreaches that were benefiting the community, he didn't touch those. But everything else, all the programs, the, the nights, the decorations, he just scrapped it and got rid of all of it and said, no, we're going to have God's house. And everybody said, you're crazy. People don't want the Word of God anymore. People don't want you to fixate on God and be God-centered anymore. People don't want you to teach Scripture line by line. People don't want that. They want the show. They want the songs. They want you know things to be theatrical and the football games and the soccer games. And that's what they want. That's what they want. That's what they need. And you know what? His church exploded. Hundreds of people. So big so much that people were breaking the glass windows. Busting the windows out so that they could hear him preach standing outside. And then donating money to fix the window to the church. (laughs) Yeah, if they were just busting the windows, I'd have a problem with that. But no, they'd bust the windows out and then pay to have it replaced just so that they could hear him preach. And everybody was like, this this is fine because you're in a little country setting and people don't have options. A lot of options. Then they moved him to Westminster Abbey, to the cent- or Westminster Chapel, to the center of London, and he took over the biggest church around and packed it out. And people are like, how are you doing this? He's like, I'm preaching the word. <laughs> I'm just giving people Bible. I'm offering people God. That's what we want. I don't know, that's what I want. I come to church, I want to learn the Bible. I want you to teach me something I haven't seen before. 
Heck, I want you to just remind me of something that I already know. Talk to me about Jesus. I don't need the other nonsense. I just want Jesus. And that's why we do the things that we've done here, and we kind of, you know, simplify things, and it's not to offend anybody. I'm good at offending people by accident. I don't have to do it on purpose. (laughs) Like, we're clearing it out because I just want to get back to this. I just want it simple. I want, if people ask, what are you about? I'm about Jesus. What's your ministry about? It's about Jesus. But the institutional church isn't that way. They're about the numbers. They're about the business. They're about the metrics. They're about the people. And I'm not trying to offend anybody because some people don't, haven't got the revelation yet that we need to get out of that. We need to get out of that. But the institutional church, when they deal with Jesus, it says that they degraded him or derided him. That's the word that the KJV uses. They derided him, meaning they sneered at him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. But the word derided and the sneered has like an a implication of taking away from him. Like taking something away from him. Trying to make him less than. And you know what? That's what religion does because what religion does is inadvertently or indirectly says the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't sufficient. We need you to do this. That's what works-based theology does. You have to earn your salvation. You have to do X, Y, Z. You have to be good enough. You have to be smart enough. You have to know enough. It's like, no, this justification by faith alone or through grace alone, by in, justification by faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone to the glory of God alone. That's, that's justification. That's Bible. But we go over here and say, well, Jesus did die for you, but now because he died for you, now you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. And if you don't do these things, then you'll lose your salvation. And it gets into this toss up. How many of you guys have heard this preached? I've already had conversations. You can lose your salvation. You can lose your salvation. It's like your car keys. You know, you just or your wallet. Woo, I lost it. You, know, I, you took my keys. See, I lost those. You lost my phone. Like, how many people? You, you treat it like that, like your salvation is like, I have it one minute, and now it's gone. Where did it go? It's like, no, that's not salvation. If my salvation was that easy to lose, then I don't want it to begin with. If the justification and the justifying work that Christ accomplished on the cross was that whimsical and that easy to lose, then it wasn't worth anything to begin with. But I believe that my God did a finished work on the cross. I believe that when he accomplished my salvation and said it is finished, he meant what he said. Not, it is finished, but you still have to... No, it is finished. Because listen to me, listen to me. I am not a once saved, always saved person. I do believe that you have the choice to go apostate and walk away. But that's a choice. That's a proactive choice that you make. Ask Faith to preach that message one time. She, she knows it better than I do. But you have to make that choice. It's not something that you just whimsically lose. Because if you could just whimsically lose it, you never had it to begin with. When my God said it is finished, he said it is finished. And trust me, if my salvation was something that I could lose, I would have lost it a long time ago. My God is a little bit more powerful than that. But the church wants you to think, because we, when I tell people, hey, preach about the love of God, they say, well, if I don't preach about sin, the people will have a license to sin. And I'm like, people don't need a license. They've been sinning for a long time without a license. But if I, preach about, if I preach about holiness, then people are like, hey, whoa, 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 it's just grace, just love, just mercy. And I'm like, yes, it is just grace, just mercy. But if you're not changed by grace, then you haven't been saved by grace. Because my God makes you a whole new creature. 
So when I preach about holiness, it's not a list of demands saying you need to do this, 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 and this. It's a state of being that God is doing a work in your life that is going to mold you and transform you into this. It's not something that you have to force. Look, he likens your good works to fruit. I have never seen an apple tree out there saying, oh my goodness, I'm just trying to bear an apple. I have never seen an orange tree straining to produce an orange. I mean, have you ever walked through the woods and seen a walnut tree like gritting its teeth and straining and like, man, you sound like you're dying. I just got to get this walnut. No, it's a fruit. The natural being of the tree produces the fruit. Holiness, God transforms. (laughs) I shouldn't have looked over there. They're chuckling and they got me choked up. Anyway, (laughs) the natural state of being in the tree produces the fruit automatically. But the church is so afraid about losing money and so afraid about losing people that we preach these standards and these things and we say, hey, you got to do this and you got to be this and you got to do this. And if you don't, you're going to hell. If you don't give 10% here, you're going to hell. Why? Book, chapter, verse. I believe you should give 10%. Tithing, it's scriptural. And I believe the lion's share of that should go to the church that you call home. But I also believe that you are entitled to give generously Because God gives generously. I don't believe that legalistic giving is how we should approach giving. I believe that we should approach giving by, hey, God gave all. You should give some. Or you should give all. You know, it's his anyway. You produce it because of what you've received and because of who God has made you into. But the church says, no, if you don't do it. And what they're doing with these standards and preaching this legalism is they're actually taking away from the finished work of Christ on the cross. So they're deriding him. They're sneering at him. They're making his work and his person less than what it is. You are saved when you say, Jesus, I confess you as Lord. Believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead by God the Father. When you say that, when you call upon his name, you are saved. You confess, you believe, you are saved. Justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's scripture. You say that you are saved, God has you. Now that should begin to work a process of sanctification in your life. And you should begin to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance or that change of heart and mind. But religion teaches you saying that and believing that wasn't enough we need jesus and your works it's like no they're separate they're separate so what religion what the church does with jesus is say we like what you did you know you saved others save yourself we like that but you need a little bit more culture is antagonistic or just altogether ignorant and church says Jesus just wasn't enough. The third thing is the civic authorities. And yes, I did make this an alliteration. I told you I'm a preacher. CCC. Civic authorities. Those people in power. The soldiers. Pontius Pilate. All of these people. 
it says that they also mocked him. Everybody's making fun of Jesus. Everybody making fun of Jesus. But the soldiers also mocked him. But then it says something interesting. It says they brought him vinegar to drink. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm thirsty, I don't really want vinegar. (laughs) I mean, have you guys ever ran a marathon and said, hey, a big glass of vinegar would be perfect right now. (laughs) Or worked on a hot day and you're sweating and you're tired and your bones are tired. And, you know, my lovely wife comes out with sweet tea or lemonade but most of the time, she's actually working with me, so we go in to get tea and lemonade together. But anyway, the, she comes out, you know, you think that pretty picture with the sweet tea. And I say, no, I love that, but I'd really just like some white vinegar. Could you just, no, <laughs> that's right. Ooh, David. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that, so they're offering him something he didn't ask for. If you read the other uh, accounts, He actually asks for water and they give him vinegar instead. But they offer him something he didn't ask for. And see, a lot of times what people do is they try to give God things he didn't even ask for. They try to do a certain ministry and then slap tag God's name on it or hashtag God's name on it. And God didn't ask them to do that to begin with. It's like uh, Nadab and Abihu, they offer to God strange fire. They take incense in. Hey, we're going in. We're doing a work for God. Let's bring the incense in and let's light it. And does anybody know the story of what happened to them? (laughs) It didn't work out well in their favor. They died. God, or think about Cain. Cain and Abel, that's a familiar one. Everybody knows that story. Cain and Abel come. Cain brings some veggies. (laughs) Abel brings some meat. We know that God's not a vegetarian. See, vegetarianism is not of Jesus because God said, nah, veggies, that's not good enough. We want the meat. (laughs) That should have been a lot funnier than what it was. It just hit me. I thought it was funny. But God is not a vegan. Let's go. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, I watched a thing the other day. I forget what it was from, but this guy said, (laughs) he took this girl out, this woman out on a date. And uh, he said, you got to, this place is amazing. They have the best lamb. And she said, oh, she said, well, I'm, I'm a vegan. I'm a vegetarian. And uh, he said, oh, okay. And so she started making a big deal about it. And he said, he just looks, <laughs> and she said, I, I wish that I was just strong enough, but I'm just not strong enough to, to eat one of God's creatures. And he says, that's because you need more protein in your diet. <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> that's amen hallelujah <laughs> come 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 around me on thanksgiving we're having ham and turkey we believe in the double portion amen <laughs> hey <laughs> but any anyway they offer to god something he doesn't want and everybody's like well poor cain poor cain now actually think about this when adam and eve sinned god killed a lamb and took the wool and the skin, the leather, and he fashioned garments for Cain and Abel. So God actually committed the first sacrifice. So Abel was just keeping in what God had done. And Adam's punishment was to be a tiller of the ground. That was his punishment, to grow vegetables. And so Cain was operating out of the curse. Abel was operating out of the redemption. So... Cain didn't just get 
bad because he just didn't know. God's not like that. You're never held accountable for what you don't know. And see, that's another thing about the church. Yesterday, I, when I was at the hospital with Brian, God put it on my heart to share something with him, and I'm going to share that with you. One of the things that I wanted to share with him was when Moses went before the burning bush before God, God asked him a question. He says, what do you have in your hand? God doesn't say, hey, Moses, for you to be the deliverer of the children of Israel, here's what you're going to need and give him a long list. He just says, what do you already have? What do you have in your hand? God is not going to ask of you something that you don't have. No, he's going to ask you what you have, demand that you give what you have, and then he's going to multiply the magnitude of what that is. See, Moses had a stick covered in sheep feces. Lois Ann, I've got to mention poop every time I preach for some reason. (laughs) But (laughs) he had a stick covered in sheep poop. It was worthless, a tree branch covered in sheep poop. But you know what happened? God touched that and anointed it, and then it became an operator of miracles. It turned into a stake back into a tree to represent the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the curse being dealt with on the cross. And then he took that same stick before Pharaoh and wiped out his magicians, and then he took that same stick and it turned water to blood. And then he took that same stick and it caused hail to fall and fire to appear, and it caused lice to come and locusts and worked all the ten plagues with that same stick that was altogether worthless before God touched it and then that same stick verified and or parted the Red Sea then that same stick confirmed Aaron's call to the priesthood and then that same stick went and put was put into the Ark of the Testimony the Ark of the Covenant and still abides there to this day a dead lifeless stick worth nothing but God touched it and it became something of eternal magnitude God doesn't ask you to give what you don't have. He asks you to give what you already have, no matter how, if it's minutes left. The thief on the cross only had minutes. No matter if it's years. No matter if you're strong or smart or dumb and stupid and poor. It doesn't matter. God asks you to give what you have, and then he touches that, and he makes it something. That's why Paul says, not many wise, not many strong after the flesh. No, he uses the weak things to confound the strong and the foolish things to confound the wise. God doesn't need you to be something. He just wants you to be who you are and then touch that, and he's going to make that of eternal magnitude. That's what God does. And he wants you to offer that which he has given you to offer. He doesn't want you to bring and offer something that you're not and offer strange fire or offer vegetables. He wants you to offer yourself so the world the civic authorities government they try to offer god all kinds of stuff we'll put the ten commandments in the courthouse no we'll take them down we'll put them in the schools no we'll take them down they try to give god all kinds of stuff god doesn't want that god wants you and we keep trying to offer god our works we keep trying to offer god everything else but god wants us to offer ourselves antagonistic or passive, is still a decision against. Trying to take away from Christ by offering works-based assurance is still against. Trying to offer God everything that he hasn't asked for is still against. I don't care how great of an idea the ministry is. If God didn't ask for it, then that's not what he wants. And sometimes it's hard because we're like, God, I've got this idea and this idea and this idea. And God says, you know what I want? I want you to sit down and rest for a few months. You mean you want me to do nothing? Yeah, I want you to do nothing. How easy is that, love? Sometimes God just says, I want you to shut up. Tell me God doesn't, God spoke to me that way before. God, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? And he's like, just chill. 
Like, I think about Asher and Claire, you know, they're little pots of energy, like just ding, 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 ding. And sometimes we're trying to watch a movie, and they're turning around asking all these questions, make all these statements, and they're jumping and climbing and crawling and, and wrestling. And cut, and they're like, hey, hey, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to sit down and watch the movie with you. <laughs> but just chill. But we're like, we got to do something for God. God doesn't need you to do something for him. He wants you to be something with him. Being always comes before doing. Being always comes before doing. So what do we do with this man, Jesus? Then you get to the two thieves on the cross. And they're a part of culture. They're a part of the world. But this is where it ultimately comes down to. All these points are leading up to you've got one of two decisions. You've got the one thief who's making fun of Jesus. And the word that it uses, that it uses there actually means blasphemy. He's blaspheming against God. He is antagonistically opposed against God. And then the other thief worships God. That's ultimately how it all comes down to is it comes down to one of those two decisions. One thief mocks, blasphemes, and the other thief worships. And I love this. One of my favorite revelations that God ever gave me is found in the thief's plea. When the thief says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I love that because we use remember as in like I recall something to my memory. But that's not what remember means. Remember is the opposite of dismember. And dismember t- means to take something apart. Remember is putting it back together. And I love this because in our language, what it is saying is, God, I am broken. My life is in shambles. I feel like I have been pulled every which way. I feel like there's not a single thing that's going right or together in my life. It's chaos. Will you give me peace and put me back together? We taught Asher what peace means. Peace means nothing missing, nothing broken. That's the definition of shalom. So when something's missing or something's broken, that's anxiety and stress. That's the opposite of shalom. That's the person running away in the dream. They don't have shalom in the dream. They don't have peace. They're running they're running. That's because they're not dealing with this question. What shall I do with this man, Jesus? And I'm not talking about you guys having that dream. There's a lots of things in your life that might produce that dream. I'm just talking about through the, the metaphor that we're using, people have turmoil and chaos in their life because they won't deal with this question. What shall I do with this man, Jesus, who is called Christ? What shall I do with him? They don't deal with this question so they don't have peace and they feel dismembered. And so the thief, he's in a rough situation. He's in a rough situation. He, he gets it right. He says, we are here suffering justly for our sins, but this man is sinless. He's done nothing. He doesn't deserve to be here. So first he realizes the innocence and the holiness of Jesus. And then he asks for a little bit of substitution. He asks for God to put him back together when he comes into his kingdom. And what does he say? Lord. And the Bible tells us in Romans, if you believe in your heart that God raises him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. And then it goes on to say, everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the thief on the cross, there's no debate that even though he had a moment in time, he was put back together and went to paradise with Jesus. So the question is, what shall we do with this man, Jesus, who is called the Christ? 
And the answer is, you've really only got one of two options. Because to refrain from making the decision is to make an antagonistic decision against him. But to give everything, that's all he wants, what you have. He doesn't want you to give things that you don't have. He just wants you to give what you have. 